Um, I learned a lot in the beginning. I'm ready to find out what's in the middle. Amen. Exactly right. A whole bunch of you came back for round two, so I guess that means I didn't screw anything up last <laughs> night. Or I screwed something up real bad, you just want to see me do it again. Either way, here I am. And some new faces. Very excited to have all of you. We were talking about it um, before most people got here about how we've been sharing our message on social media. And because when I got to the church, the church had been sharing the message on, on social media. But with the transition of this COVID virus, this pandemic, we've seen more people kind of naturally transition to social media just to get their information, to get their church, uh, to get a message. And Wednesday nights, uh, Pastor started to join us. And I think a nonprofit site that I run out of the church, the church, my page and Pastor Jerry's page. We're seeing over 300 people watch the message in a church this big outside of our church. We're seeing that message go out and that's not even, a, a, well, it's a message, but it's a Bible study. So that's cool. Of course, we got home last night, Carol and I, and we're seeing hundreds of people on top of who are here are actually joining us in the revival online. So lots and lots of people are getting this, you know, and it's good stuff. And uh, it's, it's because it's time right now, and we talked about this last night, for a revival in the church across the world, and specifically in our county, and the Holy Spirit to do a work in all of us so that we might do a work in our community so that with upcoming. You know, there's a lot of changes we all want to make life easier for us. But I'll say it straight. I don't care who gets elected. I'd rather see a whole bunch of people get saved. Right? So last night we started out within the beginning. So there's a theme here. It's three parts. In the beginning and in the end will be our book bookends. And then in the, in the middle. So what happens in the middle? So what's the middle of the story between... The creation story and what happens to mankind and specifically what happens to you and I at the end of times. There's got to be a filler. There's got to be more to it than just God made man, man fell down, and then God redeems man. There's got to be more to this story. And that's what we're all living in right now is what happens in the middle. What do I do in the midst of this? What do I do in the midst of my pain in the midst of my alcohol abuse, in the middle of my rearing kids, in the middle of my job, that maybe it's awesome, maybe it sucks. It's life, right? So what happens in the middle stages between the birth and the death? There's got to be, there's got to be some rules. There's got to be some regulations. There's got to be guardrail guidelines. There's got to be something for the Christian that's wishful thinking, right? Of course, we're supposed to have an answer for our hope, the hope that lies within us. And when you have those answers, they should be tied to things, tangible things, not just, well, I hope that Christ died for me or I have this hope of going to heaven in the end. They should be tangible things. You know, Carol and I walked uh, early this morning. It was probably... 6, 6.15 this morning, we were doing our little three-mile walk loop, uh, which, by the way, we still hold hands on the whole way. Aww. And uh, I know, aw. And we were talking kind of about this, these tangible answers to things, and how as a church, specifically as it pertains to revival, should be able to give answers for the hope that lies within us, like actual answers. And we kind of talked about this last night when we talked about the creation story was, what answers do you have for that? When somebody asks a tough question about how Jesus or the Holy Spirit works 
in your life? Are you able to reference something? Are you able to reference a specific verb? Have some sort of experience in your life that's this is where Jesus worked in my life. This is where Jesus saved my marriage. This is where Jesus took that substance out of my hands, my bloodstream. This is where Jesus stepped in and pulled that nasty person out, or he convicted me not to hang out with those people. Whatever that might be, is that part of your story where it is so real to you that you know that it wasn't an accident, that it wasn't happenstance, that it was God who stepped into your life and said, I've got more for you. And I'm going to do that. We're going to talk about those things tonight. So we're going to start tonight in the middle. There's a lot of chapters in the Bible. I don't know about yours. Mine's got 1,189 chapters in it. Out of those chapters, 929 of them are Old Testament chapters. 260 of them are New Testament chapters. <laughs> Excuse me. And the actual middle of the Bible is somewhere between Psalm 118 and 119. Now, the problem with nailing down the word that's in the middle or the verse that's in the middle is, depending on whether or not you're reading out of a King James or a New King James or an ESV or an NIV, there's going to be some differences in the count of verses that we've got. But scholars will agree that uh, in all relevant versions of the Bible, which I think I just named the relevant ones, there may be some others that are would go ahead and open God's word to Psalm 117. And as you get there, if you don't mind, I would just like to pray for us as we start this. So Father God, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for your word. And we just ask that you would touch us all tonight as we look into many, many verses in your Bible in this lesson that are going to help support what we know about you, about our convictions and about our walk with you, and that you would help reinvigorate us, that you would create a revival in this church, that you would motivate all of us to go to our neighbor's houses and tell them this good news. For that, Lord, we ask for all of our blessings in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so last night we talked about the importance of the beginning. I'm going to back up one second. Last night was an hour and five minutes. I had four pages of notes. I have 12 pages of notes tonight. So if you didn't bring snacks, that's on you. That's your fault. Hopefully you brought one of these and something to write with because we're going to go over a lot of stuff. We talked about the importance of the beginning. We defined our foundation, the foundation of our faith as believers. And tonight we're going to talk about what happens between those things right before the time where our Savior comes to bring us home. We're going to talk a little bit about our walk with Jesus Christ and what that looks like and the importance of our strong faith in Him and the work that He did on the cross. <clears throat> Jesus said a lot. He said a lot. You know, if you ever read a red-letter read red Bible, there's a lot of words in there. There's a lot of things to go to. There's a lot about his plan for us, his desires for us, his commands for us. There's a lot of stuff to digest, and you just can't get the middle of the Bible in all in a you know, 45-minute service. So we're going to try to jam every single command that Jesus ever gave us in in the next 40 minutes. I think we're going to get there. Right? So we'll talk a little bit about that right up until the point where Christ goes to the cross, and then we're going to make our transition into time. But first, I want to take you back, okay? I want to take you back to the last supper, about sitting there with the apostles. And Christ... ...these men and women is literally impossible for the human mind to comprehend. And I think... One of the latest studies that I read is if you just take um, the prophecy for the Old Testament 
that covers just the part of Jesus' birth, you're talking about a, uh, a happenstance of something that's like 10, or what is it? It's like uh, uh, 4 times 10 to the 26th power or something like that. There's like a 1 in a you know, trillion something chance that he could even be born when he did who he did was in the time period that he was. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. That's how miraculous it is. And that's what unbelievable would mean is there's no way to get your head around this, right? So here we are getting ready to get to where Christ is crucified. Again, the prophecy that sets this thing up is unfathomable. There's no way we can even set this up. Now, as we look back at it from the lens we look at it in, it's, it's one thing. But imagine being a Jew sitting in the room with the Messiah who's telling you I'm fulfilling all this prophecy and it's working out. I, I mean, I can't imagine. If you look at it from our point of view, it would almost be like sitting in the room with an end times prophet the dragon and him saying, Hey, I'm it. I've come. You're like, no way. There's no way. I mean, these guys are sitting in the room with the Messiah. He's laid it all out and they're still doubting him. After walking with him for three years in this ministry, he's healing people. He's bringing people back from the dead. He's bringing people's sight back. He is telling them what's going to happen at the end. He is showing them how he has fulfillment of the scriptures. And they're still in there like, man, I don't know. I don't know. So the night before he's arrested, tried, and murdered, Jesus is in the upper room. He's having dinner with his friends. He's reclined, it says, right? He's having dinner. They're breaking bread. Jesus is about to lay out the institution of the Last Supper, right? The Lord's meal, the breaking of the bread, and the sharing of the wine. If you've been in the church for a while, you understand that this is common practice in the church since all the way back, to that night. This is something that after that night, the church practices. It's recorded up until the middle of the first century, at least the 50s or 60s AD, that the Christian church practices this very event on a regular basis from that day forward. For 2,000 years, people will practice this. This is one of those things that you look at in history and say, there's no way that some wazoo, off-the-cuff religion could stand the test of scrutiny or time based on a guy just having a glass of wine, some laughs, and breaking a loaf of cheap bread with a bunch of blue-collar workers and a lawyer and a doctor. This is, this is divine. So he's breaking bread with these guys, and after this institution of the Lord's Supper... He, he sets it in place, he practices it, and then he commands them, do this in memory of me. They sang songs. How about this for a picture of our fellowship here in the church? How about this for a picture of what we do in our daily life as part of our daily worship as we sing together? Just like we sing together here in church. We have people who are gifted in bringing us song. The Jews sang together. They lifted up to the Lord, their offerings of their time, their talents, their voices, and they spent time loving, one each other, loving on each other in fellowship with food and drink, with song. This is the practice that we continue today. So the church that we practice today, although slightly different, we're not reclined and there's probably not lamps lit in most churches anymore, this is what they did, they sang together, they broke bread together, they prayed together, and Jesus told them stories about himself. That's what we do. He set up church. If you look at Mark 14, you don't have to turn there now, but as part of a note, if you're going to write it down, Mark 14, verse 26, and Matthew 26, 30, it is the reference for the Last Supper where he says that they worshiped together or they sang together. And this is really important. It's important because of the psalm that we're going to go back to here in, the minute, in a minute. Here's why. There is a group of psalms right 
kind of in the middle of the Psalms called the Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. So this is the Jewish word for praise, okay? The Hallel. So if you heard Hallel, it's actually the first part of the word, Hallelujah. Okay, so it's Hallelujah is a lift up for praise, right? It's every once in a while, I didn't get this until I came to the South, where people actually respond from the congregation. We were saved out West. People, they wait, they shut up, like lunches at noon, don't slow the pastor down. We want to get to the buffet before anybody. Not in the South. The buffet is going to be there all day, especially at a Baptist church. Just saying. You warned me. And people respond with either an amen or a hallelujah. Right? People say it. They get excited about it. This is a praise. Hallelujah. I agree with what you're saying. So these psalms, this group of psalms, the Hallel Psalms, were a common group of songs that were sung, especially during, during the Jewish holy days. Now, if you remember, we talked about this last night a little bit. How about this for divine setup? Again, I prepared this weeks ago. Guess what's coming up this Friday? Rosh Hashanah, the start of the high holy days, where they would have sang the Hallel Psalms, right? How about that? It gives me goosebumps. I know it's probably just a mistake. <laughs> Maybe not. So the Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113 through 118. I would encourage you to read these. Uh, not super long. They're, they're, they're some of the shorter Psalms, and they're all, if you sing them, there's a, there's a theme that goes over and over about lifting up God and praising His name and going back to Him for um, providence. <coughs> Excuse me. They were sung at feasts, they're sung in celebrations in ancient Israel, and they're even sung for contemporary days of celebration. So that would have been, because remember, they're a theocracy, so the church-run church state. So they would have sung it for state events. They're songs of thanksgiving and praise, and I attribute it to this. You know how at Christmas, we sing Christmas carols, and probably if, if we had you come up and get on the piano, there's probably... 10 Christmas songs that you wouldn't even need to pull the words out for. And if you started playing them on the piano, people could sing them without any guidance or direction. Um, I won't break out into one now. Pastor Jerry, would you like to start one? No, I actually listened to them this week. <laughs> okay. The, uh, but if you think of the Hallel Psalms, they were like Christmas songs. So when we sing Christmas songs, there are a group of songs that all praise God that are common to the people, the highest of the religious, and the common of the commoners. And everybody knew them and sang them together around the biggest holiday of the time. So for us, Christmas, uh, we could debate, I think Easter is probably the coolest one, but we don't have a lot of Easter songs. But those Christmas songs are what the Hallel Psalms were. They were those songs that when one of those Jewish men would break out into psalm, they could all just join in and they knew them in Hebrew because since they were kids, that's what was sung around the house. That's what Mary put on the hi-fi record player when Jesus was a kid running around the house building tables and chairs, right? It probably looked like the Flintstones record player, like a pterodactyl tail. So imagine that feeling you get when you're singing these songs. You've all sat in and that Christmas song comes, like, I'll admit it. Like, I don't like people to see my soft side, but every once in a while, I'll listen to the Christmas station in my car, right? There's something about those songs that touches our hearts, especially for believers. You're driving in your car, and the song does something. It reminds you of something loving and peaceful. I mean, you could be a poor kid who never got anything for Christmas, or a rich kid who got everything, but there's something about it reminds you of that one Christmas that one, or it reminds you of that one smell in that one home where grandma was cooking that one pie. It reminds you of those meals you had collected together as a family. It may remind you of that church who had the best children's play. Right? Those songs do something to you that pull you into a place like no other. 
not in a mystical or in a spiritual sort of way, but in a true visceral, you know, a real feeling where you just love being with one another. Everybody's singing, hark the herald angels sing, and people are smiling and maybe even goofy, but fun. It was people fellowshipping with one another. The way God built us to fellowship with one another in song and praise. Letting go of the cares of the world. There really is no modern hymn or worship that touches us like Christmas music does either, right? I mean, the, the songs you hear on the radio, the contemporary music, it will come and it will go, right? If you grew up in the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, all the hippie stuff coming out of Calvary Chapel, it was cool back then. These guys aren't going to listen to it. It's not cool now. So there's a different type of music. These psalms would have been cool, ageless, like our Christmas songs are kind of ageless, right? So we all sing it together. We're at home. We're at church. We all know the words. We all join in. Imagine that. That's what's going on right here. They just broke bread. They just drank wine. And now, boom, they're breaking out in song. They've joined hands. They are singing. The noise is coming out of the upper room. They are unapologetically happy to be with Jesus and singing to God. And he's told them, they're coming. They're coming to tear this temple down. And in the midst of that, they're singing praise songs. Hard for me to get my head around that. This psalm, Psalm 117, right in the middle of the Bible, was very likely to have been a song sung regularly as, as a part of praise for all of them because it is one of the Hallel Psalms. But thanksgiving and worship and the end of each celebration, every time that the early church that were, before the Hebrews were busted out of there in about 70 AD, where they broke bread and drank the wine in memory of him, this psalm was most likely sang. So if you're ever having one of those days where you feel far away and you just feel like I need to sit down and be thankful for what I've got, this was a good one to read. Because most likely, you're going to be reciting the words. Read it out loud. You're going to be reciting the words that those first century Christians sang as praise, not only on that last night, but also a year later when their Savior had died and rose from the dead and left to be with the Father. Imagine what that next year was like when they sang praise songs. Like They knew then. This stuff's real. He was real. So let's go there. I'm going to read it in two different versions. I'm going to read it in the King James, some of you that makes really happy, and I'm going to read it in the ESV. And I'm going to the reason I'm going to do that is because of a couple word differences that I want you that I want to point out to you. Both of these versions are very accurate, but they use one word that's different that gives us kind of a more rounded perspective of this. <laughs> so if you're in the King James, we will read there first. So Psalm 117, we'll read through the whole thing. It might take a couple of minutes. It's two whole verses. They have titles. In the King James, most titles will be let all peoples praise the Lord, depending on which, which King James you've got. Starts like this in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Sung with might. Praise the Lord. If you have the ESV, the ESV says this. If you've got the King James in front of you, because I think that's what's in the back of every pew here is our new King James, find where the difference is as I read it. So the, the um, title in, in the ESV is this, the Lord's faithfulness endures forever not let all people praise the lord but the lord's faithfulness endures forever and it starts like this in verse one praise the lord all nations extol him all peoples 
For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So a couple of little differences in there that you might have picked up on, right? Differences that make a difference. Differences that well-round our story. A couple points. Did you pick up on this? Gentiles versus nations, right? You know what this tells me? Christ died for all of the world. He came for everybody. I'm not going to get into a discussion tonight about the atonement and who specifically he died for. We can get a theological conversation. But he came for all of us. He wanted all of us to be redeemed to him. Whether we choose that redemptive power or not is part of our own salvation story. But Gentiles versus nations, he comes for all the world. Israel was looking for its new earthly king, but this praise is clear that all of the world is to praise God. You see, here they'd been singing these songs for years. They'd been singing these songs throughout all the holy days. They'd been singing these songs on their high holy days. They'd been singing these songs so much, they know every single word for them, and they missed the point. Jesus is singing the words of David himself, the words of the Holy Spirit himself. Praise the Lord, all nations. Not praise the Lord, Israel. All nations, Gentiles, everybody. He came for us. He came for you. He came for me. That's who he came for. Here's the other thing, and I point this out because I think we minimize this when we talk about the word propitiation, which we will get into a little bit tomorrow. Propitiation is just a big word to say that Jesus physically is the payment for our sin. See, we use the word atonement in church a lot. We use the word atonement because it's an easy word. Like, you know, if you went to court and somebody paid your fee, that would atone for your ticket. But you see, Jesus' death was more than an atonement. It's a propitiation. It means not only did he go in to pay for it, but the only payment was he had to die. He was the payment for it. You see, they're singing these songs of praise, and they have no idea what's about to happen here. You see, if you go back five minutes, I told you he'd been telling them all along he's about to die, and they're still singing praise songs, but I don't think they really got it. They didn't really know, as a matter of fact, what's going to happen a few hours later. He's going to get arrested. What do they do? Pew! Gone, right? They're like, oh man, I don't know about this. I don't think I can handle getting arrested thing and Roman soldiers and you know, the Sadducees and all the important people in the Jewish culture. This. You see, they're singing praise songs hours before Christ is to be violently beaten and killed for us. And I wonder sometimes in our trials, in our life, when we're down, when we're out, when things are not well, when we've gone back to our vices, whether it be physical vices, the things we consume, whether it be a vice of how we treat people, sins of commission, things that we do, or sins of omission, being a Sunday morning church Christian. When we're going through those things, when we're making our way through the burdens of life, are we still praising God? Do we really give him praise when things hurt so bad that they're overwhelming and you can't, you just can't take it? Or do we just separate ourselves from him and we say, well, I'm just, you know, the, we cover it. God will take care of it for me. No, this call here is these men are joyfully singing in the midst of preparing for the king to be killed, to be slaughtered. 
And I wonder, as Christians, do we do that? Imagine if for Christmas, instead of putting the angel up on the tree, remembering the birth, it was a vivid picture of spilt blood. Vivid, grotesque of spilt blood. Jesus was born such a cute little child and then whipped with a cat of nine tails with chunks of brass, iron, and teeth in it, tearing the flesh from his back. Would we still sing Christmas songs? Or would that change the way your Christmas morning looked? Christians, do we still praise him in the midst of the reality? Christ gave us 49 commands for the middle. We have the beginning. We have the end. Christ's words give us 49 commands of how we should do things. This is the crux of this. I have 20 minutes. I'm going to give you 49 commands. So get your pen ready. I hope it was full of ink. I'm going to give you all of them so you don't need to Google them later. You can Google me. So you can say you heard it here first. Verse for all of these, but I want you to get these down because these are a good reference point for those times in your life where you need some. Before he died, he gives a whole list of things they should be doing with themselves. And these aren't commands like the atheist would tell you, well, you just got to go follow a bunch of rules. No. Things for healthy, happy living. These are things that, that separate us from the goats. These are things that make us who we are. Things that are good for our lives. Joy. And things that help us remember our sin. Big, huge movement in the church today. Don't need to repent for your sin. Sorry, it's written in the Bible. It's a fact. To repent is a magical thing. I don't need to go to some guy in a long robe and tell him all of my sins and get on my knees. Go confess my deepest, darkest secrets to somebody that I don't know and get all embarrassed. The word repent means to turn around or to turn away from, to turn towards Christ. That's what we do. God knows. I don't need to go to Pastor Jesus. God knows how awful I am. Right? I'm not saying don't repent to your brother or your sister. That is a good practice. But Jesus tells us to repent. Matthew 4.17. Repent. Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me is another command that Jesus gave. Follow me. That's a command to me. This is one of those commands where the liberal theologian, the liberal pastor, preacher, teacher, liar, heretic would tell you he was a cool in a long robe and uh, you know he came up with some good ideas. No, he said to follow. He was a discipler, right? He was the rabbi. Matthew 4.19, follow me. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's right. Because when we follow him, he's going to bait the hook for us, right? Because people are going to see, what is it that you've got that I need? You know what it is? It's called hope, right? Rejoice, Matthew 5. 11 and 12. Rejoice, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are seeing this unfold. Now, it's not as bad in the U.S. as is in some countries where people are literally being killed. There are places in the Pashtun region in Pakistan and Afghanistan, less than 2% of the people are saved or will open themselves up to say that they follow Christ or places like Africa where people are murdered for their 
um, profession of Jesus Christ. But he's saying rejoice in this. Rejoice. Look, people are going to come after you. People are going to try to close the churches in California. They're going to do it. Cool, man. Praise God. You know what you just did for John MacArthur's church, and I can't remember the other guy's name? Do you know what you just did? You put that man in the news. Those sinners have no idea how big it is. So John MacArthur's church is about 8,000 people. So about 8,000 people over the course of a week join him in person. That's a huge church. Not, a, not as big as some of the mega churches, but that's huge. Now give him a news article that crosses over all the liberal news net, net, networks, like the Communist News Network and MSNBC and all that trash that's out there, and everybody reads those articles, and then they start clicking on this guy, and you just hear him saying, hey, man, we love this community, and we just want to be there for them. And people are, I, look, people are drawn towards hope. They're going to hear his message through the government trying to stifle him. You know why? Because Governor Gavin Newsom, he doesn't got anything on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Nothing. We didn't need to vote in the Holy Spirit. Let your light shine. Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to to your Father who's in heaven. Talked about this a little bit last night. Not only do we need to be preaching, but we need to be doing things for people. There's this humbleness to doing the, the work of Christ, right? Where we don't do it because we want to be seen or give ourselves the glory. But there's also a part of this that we do good works constantly. Why? Because he loved us first. Honor God's law is the next one I'm going to give you. Matthew 5.17. Talked about this a little bit last night. Matthew 5.17. Very commonly preached on passage, often incorrectly. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So look, this is where we turn back to our creation story and we, we have an answer for it. This is important. Be reconciled to him. Matthew 5, 23 to 25. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. This has been, and go back and reconcile to him. Right? We should be reconciling with each other. You should be reconciling with your friends, with your husband, with your wife no matter how awful she gets. I always allow Carol to reconcile with me. She repents of her sin. I'm going to pay for this come Thursday. But it is up to us to reconcile with one another, especially as believers. There's things we are going to disagree on. And at the end of the day, we should be high-fiving and telling each other we love one another. We can't go to the altar of Christ, of the Father, and say, I love you, and have hatred for our brother or sister or neighbor. It is impossible. That's not the way we're built. So we repent, we reconcile, and then we make our way to the altar. This is one that is relevant in the world today. Do not lust. Matthew 5, 28 to 30. Do not lust. Now the word lust commonly is brought about as a sexual connotation, Right? The Bible means just that. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with, his heart, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your uh, members than your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body thrown into hell. Remember, this is Jesus taking the law to the next level, right? He's taking the Ten Commandments and he's going, hey, by the way, I didn't just mean you shouldn't act on your sin. I'm saying when you think about it, you're actually wrong. 
This is such a huge problem today because we are such a twisted society. Look, and I fall in that group. I fall in a group of people who is quick to hate. I am quick to not like people. I am quick to find judgment in people. I am quick to find a reason to commit violence against them in my head. It's a flaw in me. It's a flaw in my heart. There are times where I have to say out loud, nope, can't think that way. Got to give this one to Jesus. Because when we carry that stuff with us, we just carry the guilt of that sin with us. This is where that repentance piece comes in. We are called not to do it. Keep your word. I'm just going to give you the verse of a couple of these and then we'll move on. Keep your word, Matthew 5.37. Matthew 5.38-42. Love your enemies. We can debate that one during another sermon. I'll let Pastor Jerry cover that one. Matthew 5, 40, 40, 46. Be perfect. Be perfect. That's a whole other sermon, right? Matthew 5, 46 to 48. Practice secret disciplines. Matthew 6, 1 to 18. It says there, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. I won't read the rest of that, but here it is in a nutshell. I don't know if you've ever been to this church, not this church, the church I'm about to describe. I've been there where you walk and then everything after that's just downhill and you're like, oh my God. I actually don't even care. Like I could walk in, not be seen by anybody, sit somewhere in the back. Nobody would ever say good morning or hello. I could leave that place a sinner and die in my sin and nobody would ever have said anything to me. I had a pastor say to me uh, that I was traveling on a trip for college and I'm walking through the terminal. I'm going back to where my uh, gate is to where the plane is. And, you know, as a pastor, as a spiritual man of the Lord, He's walking through there and he realizes, I'm just walking amongst a bunch of people who are dead in their sin. And I said, that feeling walking into church here on Sunday. And he said, and I was like, brother, look at what's going on here. We'll literally walk by each other in the halls and turn their heads as to not make eye contact with one another. I would shame this church if it ever did that. It's not that we've been here. But that is happening at large churches. It's like they punched the church ticket on a Sunday morning. They're like, God is good, God is great, right? Off to the buffet. Well, yeah, those aren't open anymore. I don't know where people go now. There's no buffet, so I know where we go. So some of those secret practices, right? How do we pray? So don't pray like the hypocrites pray. We don't do this repetitive prayer stuff. There's a whole sermon on that. And all the churches who do repetitive prayer, prayers in weird ways, talk about this, where they just got a whole bunch of people saying a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo for absolute reason. If you can find me a verse in the Bible that supports mumbo jumbo talk in large groups with no translations, and we could debate that later, but not a verse in there that supports it it if you'd like but there is one prayer in there that talks about how we should pray I'll to you see if this rings a bell our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day your daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and then if you have the king james If you do not forgive others, neither will your. These are commands. Fasting is something you should put into your life and don't tell anybody. Just do it. Just take a day off. And don't eat. Why? Because God said to do it. 
When you take away from your body that which you feel is necessary, you will find that God will speak to you. I don't mean in some audible, still, small voice. I mean you'll read this book and he will help to reveal things to you. It's a fact. He said to do it. That's in the book. Where do we lay up our treasures? That's right. We don't lay them up here. That's Matthew 6, 19-21. We seek God's kingdom. We're told to judge not, right? I want to make sure that this is clear, and I'm only going to hit a couple more of these. Matthew 7, 1 to 3, judge not lest you be judged. That does not mean that we do not hold each other accountable as Christians and call people out on their sin. That is not what that means. That means when I'm a sinner, I don't go to some other sinner and call him a sinner for the sinning that I'm sinning on because he's a worse sinner than I am. It is judge not each other in some unrightful way. We are called to judge this world. If there is sin in this world in our circle, we are called to call it out, period. End of story. I know unbelievers don't like us for doing it. They will never know that they were sinning if we don't call them out in it. I don't know how the liberal church is dying in this right now, but it makes no sense to me that Jesus would heal somebody and the first words out of his mouth would say, go forth. And sin no more. He didn't say, hey, bro, you got your vision back, man. Go back to the strip club and drink a bunch of beer and hit on all the girls. That's not what he said. He said, don't sin anymore. It's easy. It's clear. If we're not calling people out, if they don't know what the difference between sin and righteousness is, how would they, what would they repent from? What would I repent from? Now, as a Christian, we have conviction. And I think even non-believers do have conviction. I think people know. They know the difference between right and wrong. I think it burdens people in different ways. But we can't know what their burden is. So we just need to let them know. And I'm not saying in a rude way. I'm not saying you go up to people and, and, and rudely call them out in their sin. I mean, there are some street preachers out there that are they're ruining it for the church right now. You can't yell young ladies outside of an abortion clinic and call them murderers and expect them to come into your loving arms. That is baloney. That you can love them and tell them that God's got a plan for their life and a plan for the child that's in them. That's it. Don't cast pearls. That ties right into that, right? So we're not wasting our time just spitting a bunch of good stuff out to the hogs. Ask, seek, and knock. We should be unto others. Man, some people say the golden rule is not in the Bible. Funny, Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. Seems pretty simple. Does that mean they're going to do it for you? Nope. But you know what we're going to do? Rejoice. Choose the narrow path. What's it mean to choose the narrow path? As I creep up toward the end, we've only got 20 more to go. we got one hour left. I'm just kidding. <laughs> choose the narrow way. This is a funny verse. Choose the narrow way. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. It's wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, it's like one of the oldest books that we've got like written in the English language. I mean, it's an amazing book, Pilgrim's Progress. What does it mean to choose the narrow way? It means it's hard. It's just hard. There are days when it's horrible. 21 years we've been married as of September 4th, right? Yeah. I, I, wish, I wish I had a dollar for every guy that I knew that was in my profession that was divorced. I'd be a retired millionaire right now. Because marriage is tough. And I know some people have struggled with that issue of marriage and divorce. I'm not here to judge you on I'm using it as an example. Is that it's hard. God is telling us, look, this is going to be tough for you. 
there are going to be days when you don't want what I have for you. That you want to give up, give in, give out, give it over to the devil. Just let him have it. Go on and do your own thing. But it's not time for that. It's time for us to give in to him, give it up to him. We have to. This is the narrow path. It's hard. There are days where you're going to feel like giving up and not doing what you're supposed to do. And you've got to make good decisions because he wants more for you than what you already have. In a very visceral way, he wants more life. He wants to love you so hard that you love him back. I am encouraged in this to talk about a couple of guys um, real quick. And um, these guys are, uh, yeah, I skipped over, but um, a couple of guys who are kind of modern day martyrs. One is Richard Wormbrand, right, who grew up in communism in, uh, I believe it was, was it Austria? Where's Wormbrand from? I can't remember now. In the 50s and 60s, he was a pastor. If you read his book, Tortured for Christ, which the title kind of says it all, here he's a pastor in the midst of communism. The communist brothers are going through the street and rounding people up and beating them because they disagree with the government or because they preach Christianity because it was illegal. First, he's imprisoned. His wife and his 12-year-old daughter are left to fend for themselves in the home. And at a time like that in uh, Eastern Europe, it was not a good place to be without a man in the home. It was unsafe. She continued to preach. She's also a believer. Eventually, she is imprisoned. Her daughter is left to fend for themselves till the communists throw her out on the street, 12 years old. Where the neighbors wouldn't even let her into the house. The local authorities made kind of a joke of it. If you see you in that house, we'll go beat the owners of that house. To where she's raped repeatedly, treated poorly. His wife is raped in prison, treated very poorly. He spent uh, the majority of 12 years in a communist prison. And then there's some irony that kind of happens in God's funny divine way where one of the guards, prison guards, had committed an atrocity, I don't remember exactly what it was, but so bad against the state that his punishment was to throw him in the cell with good old Mr. Wormbrand. Like, you are such a bad guy, we're going to throw you in the cell with that Christian. <laughs> Let him work on you for a while. And guess what Richard Wormbrand did? He preached the gospel to that guy. Guess what happens next? He got saved. But then he got killed. Guess where he is now? Yeah, he walked the narrow path. It was hard for him. It wasn't easy. Um, Bonhoeffer, pastor, Germany, World War II. I love this guy's story. I've read a couple of his books. Amazing. Christians were hated by the Nazis. He flees with a bunch of Jews and Christians to the United States, to New York. And then the Holy Spirit digs into him and says, you're going back in the midst of the war. No, he didn't go with a helmet and a gun. He went with a Bible and a conviction, right? I don't know if you, how much of this book you've read, but all those people end up dead. He knew it. He went back and preached the gospel in the midst of Nazi Germany and was hung for it. The narrow road. The reason I bring these things up isn't to say, ah, you should go set yourself on fire for Christ. Ah, that's ridiculous. I don't think making a martyr out of nothing is, uh, out of, uh, that's ridiculousness. But here's the point behind this. Those days that you've got where things are really tough, there's nobody coming to your house to pull you out and whoop you. I don't know about you, but the AC works in my house. Things are pretty easy around here. When you're feeling discouraged, 
about the things in your life that you think are overwhelming, think about those guys. Think about how tough it has been for some of our fellow believers who are in glory right now and how hard life has been for them, who stood the test of time, who stood in front of their Lord and he said, well done. And I'm encouraging that because I think of all the dumb stuff I did as a kid, even when I first joined the military, the substance abuse, I was a full-on addict, active duty addict, imagine that. Real pride of your tax dollars at work. And a drunk, and angry, I was a loser. And when I was saved, I was pulled out of that. And I think about those times when it seemed like it was so hard that I just had to go back again to the drugs and the women and the booze. And I had to go back and I had to go back because everything was tough and my boss was coming down on me and the world was just overwhelming and my parents weren't nice to me when I was a kid. I don't have enough money. My girlfriend dumped me. So I go to all these things and I think, man, I was just a wuss. That's what I was. I was just a wuss because a lot of people have had it a lot harder than me and rested on the hope of the Lord and made it through. Look, man, this ain't a prosperity gospel. Sometimes life sucks. It's tough. And it might not get better. And you might be a martyr for your faith. It might happen. It's the hope in him that brings us to the end tomorrow. Beware of false prophets. I'm going to give you a couple I think are important. Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 and 16. I'm going to encourage you the music from your what church it comes out of. Google that church. Find out if they're a prosperity gospel church or if they're one of those weird mystic churches. Don't listen to it anymore. I don't care if it's Jesus or Holy Spirit in it or it makes you feel all tingly while you're dancing around the house in your best fuzzy sock. If you're watching on TV or listening to him on the radio and he makes you feel really good, you might want to Google him. A whole bunch of stuff in here that makes you not want to turn to Psalm 117 and sing praises to the Lord. Because a whole bunch of it's very convicting. If every time you listen to this person, they're like, Man, if I just plant another $1,777 seed, I'm going to end up being a millionaire. You turn that person off. And then get up and slander them. Because they are a liar. Let's share it together with me. Pray for the faith. We should be praying for each other. Missionaries, pastors, preachers, deacons, teachers, men and women of the church. The women that serve us food on Sunday, laborers in the church, everyone should be prayed for. Why? Because we love them and they're doing God's work. The eyes as serpents. You know what that means? Dig into this thing and learn it so you have an answer for everything. Wise as a serpent. Right? Dig into that book. It's got all the answers for you. Fear not. Why not? Because my God's bigger than your God. Hear God's voice. Read this book. Take my yoke because it is what? It's light. That's right. Honor your mom and dad. Deny yourself. That's a tough one. That's a, that's a, that's a uh, two-hour session all in itself, right? There are 49 commands that Christ gives us throughout the Bible. I am not going to get to all of these, but I'll just tell you this. We should be loving on people who are less than. We feed the poor. We clothe the naked. It's what we're called to do. You should find a way to do it. It's not that I'm not a lot of friends who are on the mission field, but I almost guarantee you there's someone from you that just needs your That's in your, in your family or in your people group who you just know need your love or so you somehow have that connection to. Some people are called things, you know, Pastor Jerry... He's called to go do stuff in Honduras. Some people are called to do stuff internationally. The mission field is, you know, you, you could literally walk next door, even if the political sign in their front is not your affiliation, 
and you could say hello to them and ask them why they're unedited and then share Jesus with them, right? I didn't say which one, so don't assume, all right? Psalm 117 is in the New Testament in Romans 15. In Romans 15, starting in verse 8, this is Christ, the hope for the Jews and the Gentiles. And we're going to close with this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, or the nations, right? And then as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is Paul looking all the way back at Psalms 117 and saying, Remember that song? Do you remember that song that you were singing every Christmas? It wasn't Christmas then, because they didn't. But do you remember that Christmas carol we sang, 117, all the high holy days? You remember how we were talking about the Gentiles? Okay, here it is. Here it is. Look, this is our goal. Go to the Gentiles, take that out to the earth, and then we're going to praise him in that. In the midst of a coming persecution, the apostles sing songs of praise. Is that you? Is your heart so content with the work of Jesus in your heart and in your life that you are able to sing praises to him? Have you given him all of your burdens and allowed him to place his yoke upon your neck so that your burden will be lightened? It's time now to sing praise to him. It is time now to sing for what we have, our hope in him for eternity. You can come up if you don't mind. I want to close with that. This is the central message of the gospel. This is the middle. Christ has laid out 49, Google it, 49 commands. And these are not commands like you will do this, you will do that. What these are is these are ways for us to follow him in a unique way as believers that we are able to rejoice in the midst of all the junk that happens. Because let's be honest with ourselves. If you're anything like me, man, when Christ found you, you were low-hanging fruit. Right? You know the stuff that gets soft and falls off the tree where the deer eats it. Low-hanging fruit so caught up in my own tragedy I didn't know where to go there's only one place to go shrivel up and fall off that tree but he didn't let that happen he had a plan for me which means I know he's got a plan for you it's time to dig in it's time to dig into the word of God and learn those commands we learn those commands and we help sharpen that hope in us it gives us that answer that we're looking for on those days when it doesn't seem like there's any hope or there's no answer. When it doesn't feel like you're saved, it just feels like, you know, I remember that time when I was saved 20 years ago and I went to the altar and I felt great and then it just fizzled out. 20 years have gone by and it doesn't feel like it matters anymore. Tonight it matters. Because tomorrow when you get up, somebody in your circle will be hopeless. Let that be your motivation. Let that be your motivation. Let them see you singing praise through your walk to the extent that they look at you and say, 
What do you got that I don't got? I'll tell you what I got. I got a Savior that loves me. I got a Savior that loved me so much. When he designed this place, he knew me. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your redemptive plan. We thank you for our walk. Like the pilgrim and pilgrim's progress, we thank you for the hills and the valleys, the sunny days, the stormy days, the days when no one loves us and we're on our own. We thank you for the days when we're all gathered together singing your praise. We know that it's a picture of the fellowship in heaven. And we crave that, Lord. We crave it with our entire being. We ask that the words that we've gone over tonight, Lord, be a sweet incense to you. That you would just love us. Turn the Holy Spirit loose. Allow us to be the hands and feet of your church, that people would come and hear you and get saved, that they would repent, that they would walk the narrow path. Not that they would follow 49 rules, Lord, but they would just learn that your yoke is light, that there's so much hope in you. We just beg of you, Father, to do that work in our county, in our country and in our fallen world, that you continue to touch us. Let this revival, right here in the middle, be a time where people find you. We ask for all of our blessings. In the name of your precious Son and our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.